Urettfärdig. Urettfärdig. I don't know how much Norwegian you all speak. But if you have Norwegian speaking kids, and if your kids go to Norwegian kindergarten or school, uh, and especially if they have siblings, I would imagine there's a good chance that you've heard that word being shouted in anguished indignation around the house. It comes from the word which means righteousness, justice, or fairness, depending how you translate it. So, means just or fair, and means your brother is playing with your favorite Lego piece. Or that your brother got, according to your very precise eyeball measurements, about three millimeters more of the chocolate cake. It means unjust or unfair. And I'll make a confession to y'all. Whenever I hear that word being belted out in the house, I invariably have an eye roll with a sigh reaction. Have you seen that one? It's like... It's a trademark parent reaction, right? It's a, a reaction indicating that said parent senses that impending doom approaches of having to deal with their child's unreasonable requests and arguments. And I know many of you parents in the room might sympathize with me, but I'm not particularly proud of this. Because as, a, as much as I would argue, and I, I should let you know that my nine-year-old disagrees with me. But as much as I would argue that the temporary possession for means of play of a designated favorite Lego piece by a sibling is not a matter of justice, still, I don't want to dismiss my child's cry of Well, not every time, Right? For one thing, it might be that there's something else going on and not just a Lego crisis. More often than not, it's a Lego crisis, but maybe, you know. And also, I don't want to dismiss my child's feelings about the situation and how much it seems serious to him, in my case, who have a boy or two boys, even if it seems utterly unimportant to me. In the least... I think he should be allowed to express his frustration with what he considers an injustice. We don't, we don't always deal well, I think, with expressions of indignation, with expressions of frustration, because they are uncomfortable. And I don't think this applies only to how we deal with children, we don't deal well with protest, especially if it is someone else's protest and not our own. Indignation, frustration, protest, they disrupt the status quo. They break the flow, which sometimes can lead to a notion that indignation and frustration are unwelcome, and even that they are unwelcome in a well-ordered and well-oiled religious machine. In other words, religious organizations, 
different faith traditions, and yes, very much Christian churches, can sometimes be unwelcoming places for expressing these things. Especially if they seem to be questioning faith or questioning God's self. Maybe you have experienced that yourself. That there was no space for you to express your frustration, your anger, your indignation in a community of faith. That you're expected to dress nice, smile, and just sing along with the tunes and with the religious party line. The thing is, protest and indignation are, in fact, deeply embedded in our tradition of faith as Christians. And perhaps especially so in the book of Psalms. We've been spending a lot of time with the book of Psalms this summer. We do that every summer here in OIC. We have what we call Summer in the Psalms. And we dwell in this unique book uh, in our Christian Bibles, which is this compilation of psalms, chants, and prayers. We find it right about in the middle of our Christian Bibles and the part that we also share with the Jewish scriptures. And these psalms, they are songs, they are chants, they are prayers, they are liturgical pieces that were made for and or used actively by a community of faith in the practice of faith. And a unique thing about them is that there are in our scriptures that we call holy scriptures, that we understand as a part of how God has revealed himself to us. So we believe these are words from God to us, but we also, because they are these songs and prayers and chants, they also invite us to sing them. So how does this work out? And every summer we spend time with that, with that question. What does it mean to sing these songs? What do they mean for us today? Is it proper? Some of them seem extremely improper for us today. How do we work around that? How do we deal with that? And the Psalms, if you read through them, there's 150 of them in our Christian Bibles, they have a lot of room for frustration, for indignation, for anger, even desire for vengeance. All of these things are despair, sense of abandonment. They're expressed there. Expressed there in words and language that we might probably shy away from in most of our Christian settings nowadays. They're very much present. And the psalm I want to read with you today is one such psalm. And again, as we've been doing these last few weeks, I want you to listen to it. And we're not going to have it on the screen. If you feel an unbearable urge to read it along, it is Psalm 10, and you can do that. But I want to invite you to listen. The Psalms emerge from an oral tradition. And sometimes listening engages our, our perception a bit different than when we read things. We're reading things for work. We're reading things for study. We're reading, we're reading, we're reading. Sometimes we need to listen. So I invite you to just listen uh, to Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak, who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his hearts. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. 
His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats, trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. So sings the psalmist, and the psalmist questions God. The psalmist cries injustice and calls God to account. How do we as a community of faith react to this? When I, as a parent, roll my eyes at my child's shout of, that is a sign of something. It's a physical expression of something, which is that I don't really want to deal with it. It's exasperation because I don't want to deal with it. And the exercise I want to propose today is that we don't roll our eyes at this psalm. That we try to discern some of the ways in which we might do that. Might roll our eyes, might have that reaction. And rather than just succumbing to inertia, to maintaining the status quo, that we might allow the psalm to make us uncomfortable and to challenge us. And I see at least two ways in which we might, to continue on my metaphor, we might roll our eyes at this psalm. The first is by dismissing the indignation and dismissing the frustration and dismissing the anger with theological platitudes and with faith-shaped plasters. We say things like, God is in control. God has a plan. I'm sure God wants to teach us something with this situation, or it will be all right in the end. And with each of these, we are essentially saying it doesn't matter or that we should shut up about it. But the psalmist does not shut up about it. Psalm 10 is originally part of a bigger whole together with Psalm 9. We're not going to go into all of that now, but Psalm 9 describes God as a just God 
and a sovereign God over all of time. And then it goes straight into Psalm 10, which struggles with God's silence and apparent inaction in the midst of time. And one psalm does not attempt to shut out the other. The sense of abandonment, the indignation in the face of injustice, the the expression of indignation, they are very real. And they are very real in the human experience, and they are very much at home in our scriptures. Psalms like Psalm 10 allow and invite us to express our indignation, our bewilderment with injustice, and yes, also with God. How, in fact, I think, how could the people of God argue to be the people of a God of justice if we didn't react deeply and profoundly to injustice? And Psalms like Psalm 10, I believe, are also a welcome counterpoint and remedy to triumphalist theologies. Very often in our scriptures and in our history and in our lives, the witness is of a people who could not see that God was acting in their time and space. If you care to draw a timeline based on how the scripture spreads out time and put the main events of God's actions, there are enormous spaces of silence. And our faith tradition is not one that ignores that, but that expresses it and brings it into the struggle of faith. If God is a God of justice, for many in history and today, it does not seem like God is acting or like we or God is winning, air quotes, and it does little service to our faith to ignore that or to try to silence the voices of pain, of indignation, and of frustration. In fact, faith is more often than not lived in that very context of silence and apparent inaction. Psalm 10 invites and challenges us to not dismiss and not dismiss indignation, not dismiss frustration and anger, to not dismiss it with theological platitudes and with faith-shaped plasters. But there is more here, I believe, than giving room for expressing our indignation and calling out injustice. There's a very interesting, potentially ambiguous translation issue in this psalm. In verse 11, the psalmist says, he says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. And it is not exactly clear who is saying this. If it is the wicked man of the psalm who thinks that he can get away with his abuse of justice because God turns the other way, or if it is the victim of his wickedness that cries out in desolation that God will never see or really change or really care about his plight. But to either of these interpretations and possible ways of reading this, the answer in the psalm seems to be the same. 
And it is expressed in verse 14, I believe, more than anywhere else. And verse 14 says, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. That is, after all, the heart of the question, isn't it? Does God see? And if God sees, how is that seeing expressed in tangible ways? In the context of this psalm, I would argue that this declaration that God sees is a declaration of faith. It's a declaration of faith. What I mean by that is that there is nothing in the psalm itself, right? in the literary context of the psalm, there is nothing in it to indicate that this affirmation is based on current evidence. On the contrary, it seems like it's a cry exactly from a, a perceiving of the contrary. Even though, of course, it may be on the, what we may call the evidence of tradition and of history. Remembering that this is part of Psalm 9, right? But still, this is a declaration of faith. God sees. But a more interesting and perhaps more relevant question is what that declaration of faith does to how the psalmist and how we move in the world. We who declare faith in the middle of history. In other words, if this is a declaration of faith, what kind of faith is that? What shape does it take? And here I would like to call our attention to another aspect of the poetical structure and language of the psalm regarding how the psalmist depicts the wicked and what we might call their their flaunting of God and dismissal of God's justice. And here it is. In the poetical language and structure of this psalm, in the poetical landscape of this psalm, the flaunting of God by the wicked is expressed in how they deal with the poor and how they deal with their own greed. It is because they treat the poor as they do that the psalmist argues that the wicked flaunt God rather than it being because they flaunt God that they do such things. In other words, the deepest problem of the wicked is not incorrect belief, but unjust practices. Their biggest problem is not how they talk about God, but how they treat the poor and the needy. How they treat those with less social standing and less power than them. Their biggest problem is how they use their resources for themselves and against the other. And this leads me to the second way in which we might roll our eyes at this psalm and what it expresses. And that is by dismissing poverty and dismissing suffering with theological platitudes and with faith-shaped plasters. And I think this can happen both by an abandonment of faith, arguing that if God isn't doing anything, we might as well just drop the whole thing. And it can happen by by sort of explaining away 
the reality of suffering, both on the larger and on a smaller scale. Or more often than not, by explaining away what's declaring by faith that God is a God who sees, what that means for how we see the world and how we move about in it. Now, if this can sound a bit hard to grasp, I want to bring in the voice of St. Mark and of St. Mark's telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to open with you, and this time we have it on the screen, on Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. Here we go. Mark chapter 2 from verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the fairies went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is how St. Mark tells the story. And we could read this text and choose to focus, focus solely on Jesus' miraculous power in healing the shriveled hand. And we could run the risk of ending up with either a triumphalist theology, an ultimately irrelevant one, or just frustrated. Frustrated that shriveled hands aren't being healed all around us. And both, I would argue, might be ways of dismissing poverty and suffering with theological platitudes and faith-shaped plasters. Or we can listen to the voice of the gospel writer, who puts these stories side by side. And what I find profoundly challenging when reading these stories side by side is realizing that this was not about miraculous power. This was about priorities, about having eyes to see. This exposes the risk of a religiosity that has the tools to bring relief, yet refuses to do so. 
of a life that has the tools to bring relief but refuse to do so. Because the issue being discussed in the gospel, in this part of the gospel, the issue being discussed with the healing was not if Jesus could or couldn't heal. That is not even being questioned here. They had seen Jesus do miracles all over the place, and they're there waiting for him to do it because they know he can do it. In the context of this text, the question is not if Jesus could or could not heal. The question is if he would do it on a Sabbath. If this concrete expression of a God who sees would take precedence over the theological and religious framework arguing that God sees. And as for the grain fields, well, the grains were there. All around the disciples with their fruit hanging and ready to be picked by those who are hungry. This was not about having or not having miraculous power. Not here in this text. This was about priorities and having eyes to see as people who declare faith in a God who sees. And this does not solve everything. It doesn't. This doesn't mean that we don't look at injustice and question God. But it does bring up the question of what our expression of faith means for how we ourselves engage with our faith that this is a God who sees. With the tools we have at hand. It does ask us how the expression of a God who sees may be the expression of us seeing, of us touching, of us even being able to question these things because we believe and we declare that God does see. And if we are his people, with the poor and suffering around us and amongst us, with the very real dimensions of pain and death around us and in our own lives, in the lives of those around us. What does that mean? How do we bring our our yearning, our hope, our indignation, and our declarations of faith together in our life? In a struggle. And it continues to be a struggle, right? I will speak only for myself. I question God when I look at the news. I question God when I see the war in Ukraine. I definitely question God when I see Christians positioning themselves around that. I do. But I don't want my indignation I don't want my frustration to be spoken into a vacuum. I want them to touch the ground. And I want to keep on trying to figure out what that looks like. 
Psalms like Psalm 10. Invite and challenge us to do that as a community of faith. God is a God who sees, we say, we sing, we pray. How do we do that? And not dismiss the indignation and the frustration and the very real suffering of the world with our theological language, with the way we use our resources, Songs of indignation are uncomfortable. They disrupt the status quo. We have to ask ourselves, isn't this a status quo that needs to be disrupted? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into your days of darkness and your days of hope that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord and serve the world and serve each other joyfully. Amen.